And so now we're continuing this morning in our series in Mark, and we come to our second sermon, which is going to be from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 34. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Hear now the eternal living word of God. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went up into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. And come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not Permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. And so this morning we, we're moving into the narrative of Mark's story here. And Mark's story is, as we mentioned last week, the backstory of the gospel. The origin story of this good news that was sweeping through the world throughout the first century and continues today. And so in his prologue, the first 13 verses we looked at last week, Mark introduces Jesus as the Son of God in the flesh, as the presence of the Lord, of Yahweh himself, as a human being on earth. So Mark also established Jesus as the servant of the Lord that we read about in Isaiah, that was sent to 
lead his people into a new exodus, freeing God's people from the bondage of sin and death, from the bondage of Satan, and delivering them into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. And this same person is also the promised Messiah. Jesus is God's anointed king, the son of David, who will reign on the throne for eternity. And so now we see Jesus beginning his public earthly ministry. And as the coming king, his first order of business is to announce that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the natural question that arises from hearing this is, what what is the kingdom of God? When we think of a kingdom, it means a territory over which a king reigns. And so in one sense, God is the creator of all things, therefore he would rule over all of creation. So in that sense, the kingdom of God is wherever God reigns, which is everywhere. But Jesus says the time is fulfilled. And there's never been a time when God wasn't sovereignly reigning over all things, heaven and earth, visible and invisible. So clearly, Jesus is referring to the kingdom of God in a different sense. By saying that the kingdom of God is at hand, or also translated, the kingdom of God has come near, Jesus is saying that this eternal reign of God is now being fulfilled. The kingdom of God is God's reign, God's rule as king. And now God's long-promised Messiah, his anointed king, who is the eternal son of God himself, who took on a human body, and his ministry and his work are being fulfilled. And so he's saying that the time of fulfillment of God's eternal reign has arrived. God has always been in control, but the fulfillment of his plan has begun. God's rule over all of creation was manifest initially, we see in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, in the exodus of Egypt, in the giving of the law. But the supreme manifestation of God's reign was promised with the coming of the arrival of the Messiah. And so the reign of God's anointed king was promised to usher in the eternal and heavenly kingdom of God over heaven and earth. And so Mark has already established in his prologue that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the servant of of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, and he is the Messiah, the Christ, the king that will come who will bring all these things to pass. And so this morning, as we study the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and his announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God, we'll see three elements of the kingdom of God. First is the entrance into the kingdom. Second is the disciples of the kingdom. And the third is the nature of the kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom, disciples of the kingdom, and nature of the kingdom. And so Mark sets the scene for the ministry of Jesus by placing it right after the ministry of John the Baptist. In verses 14 and 15 it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Mark gives us first the context that John the Baptist had been arrested. Then Jesus came on the scene in Galilee proclaiming the gospel, which simply means the good news. 
in telling this backstory of this gospel, in telling us how the good news of God came to be, Mark begins with the prologue. He tells us who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the servant of Yahweh. He is the Messiah, the Savior. And now Mark moves into the message and the work of Jesus. The message and the work of the gospel. He begins with Jesus proclaiming the gospel of God. The good news of God. And the message of this good news is that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this gospel. And so Jesus is mentioning that this time of fulfillment of God's plan of redemption has come. In the fullness of time, as the Apostle Paul puts it, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's come near. God's reign is being brought to the earth in a new way. A new era of fulfillment is taking place and being established. The Messiah, the anointed king, has come to establish his reign, and this is the good news of God. This is the gospel of God. And so what this means, not only for Israel, but for the world, what it means for God's people today, the church, what it means for us is important. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Welsh preacher, once gave a, a really good explanation of the difference between advice and news. And it's helpful in understanding the gospel. He said, advice is counsel about something you do that hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. News is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond. And so the gospel isn't advice like most religion is. Most religions tell you how you could act, and you can choose or not to do it. It's not something that's already been done. But the gospel is good news. It's something that's been done for you. Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God has good news for you because the work has been accomplished on your behalf. You enter the kingdom of God solely based on the life, merit, and death of Jesus Christ. Now, it's reasonable to ask, how can Jesus announce good news for an event that hasn't happened yet? He's announcing a few years in advance before his death and resurrection. His life, work, and ministry has not come to its pinnacle yet at the cross. So how can he be announcing this as good news? And the answer is that through faith, God's people are saved before and after the cross by the work of Jesus Christ. Before the cross, their penalty is still paid even though the cross hasn't happened yet. Just like after the cross, Jesus paid the penalty before we even sinned. God is above time. He transcends time and space. So everyone who is saved and brought into the kingdom of God is done so through faith in the gospel. Faith in promises that have not been fulfilled yet or faith in Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled them. And so just like Jesus paid our sins before they happened, those who were saved before Jesus lived and died were still saved by the promises of God that were fulfilled in the life, work, and death of Jesus. And so the moment Jesus begins his ministry, he was announcing this good news of gospel. The time has come. Jesus is about to complete the work necessary for salvation. 
Jesus is about to complete the work necessary to bring people into the kingdom of God. And as Jesus tells us, his announcement of this gospel, his announcement of this good news, this gospel calls for a response. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. And this brings us our first element of the kingdom of God. The entrance into the kingdom. As I've already mentioned, you're brought into the kingdom solely based on on the life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can come into the presence of God. You can be a citizen of heaven only because Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life that you could never live. And through faith, his perfect righteousness is transferred to you. But also... Because Jesus died a sacrificial death in your place. Through faith, your sins are transferred to him. And through his death on the cross, he bears the punishment for all your sins. Past, present, and future. But how does someone know that they're in the kingdom? What are the marks of someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of God, a citizen of heaven? There's something necessary. For everyone who is under God's reign, everyone who is in the kingdom of God, you are under God's rule and you submit to Jesus Christ as your king. You allow him to rule your life. And that's the mark of someone who repents and believes. That's what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time to fulfill all that God has promised and establish God's reign is here. The Messiah has come to bring redemption. Salvation and to call to himself a people for his kingdom. And the necessary elements to enter the kingdom are repent and believe. But if God calls you into this kingdom, he sends you his spirit to bring you to new spiritual life. His Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you, that is to make you born again. And in this, his spirit dwells within you. And the spirit, he brings you to repentance. And belief. And so what do repentance and belief look like? Here the Westminster Shorter Catechism is helpful for this. And so the Greek word pistis that is translated as belief is also the same word we often translate as faith. And so the command Jesus gives where he says repent and believe could be translated as repent and put your faith in the gospel. And so the Westminster Catechism says faith In Jesus Christ is a saving grace by which we receive and rest on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. That is to believe in the gospel, to have faith in Jesus Christ. It means that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. It's to know and believe with your whole heart that your only hope in life and in death is the life, work, and death of Jesus Christ in your place as your substitute. And it's not completely separate from repentance. Repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. If you believe in the gospel, you will repent. You can't have true belief in the gospel, true faith in Jesus Christ without repentance. They are both commands. They're both in the imperative. Repent and believe. They're not optional. And they always come together. And so for repentance, the Shorter Catechism says... Repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ, 
grieves for and hates his sin and turns from them to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. When you come into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through belief in the gospel, then your life will be changed. You will turn from your sin. Meaning you will desire to stop sinning. You'll want to please God through obedience, through obedience to him and his anointed king, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus announces the kingdom is at hand. God's anointed king is here. Submit to him. Believe in him. Allow him to reign over your life because he is your king. And then Mark wastes no time showing us what this looks like. He gives us first the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. Starting in verse 16, he writes, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Mark moves quickly into telling the actions of Jesus. And his first act is to call his first four disciples. The king has arrived and he's beginning the work of gathering his people into his kingdom. And he begins with Simon, who is Peter, another name for Peter, and also his brother Andrew. And so the scene here is the Sea of Galilee because they were fishermen, all four of them. And Jesus goes right up to Simon and Andrew. No introduction, no greeting. He just says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So this call of Jesus contains a command followed by a promise. In his command, he says, follow me. And this is a command he gives to all his disciples. All of God's people that Jesus brings into his kingdom, all who repent and believe, Jesus gives the command and the duty to follow him. And so in this call of Jesus to his disciples, we see our second element of the kingdom of God. The disciples of the kingdom. The word disciple literally means someone who is a student of another. A disciple is someone who adheres to the teachings of another. It's a follower or a learner. A disciple is someone who takes up the ways of someone else in their life. And in Judaism, disciples would literally follow around their rabbi as he taught them. And so as a disciple of Jesus, this is someone who follows him and learns from him. This is why he gives the command to follow him. He's calling these men to be disciples. He's calling anyone who would enter the kingdom of God to be his disciples. He's calling you and I to be his disciple, to learn from him, to learn to live like him. And he's calling us. Because of God's grace and mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit awakening us to conform our words and our lives to the words and life of Jesus himself. And so he also gives this promise. He says, I will make you.
become fishers of men. Jesus will change the disciples. And the disciples will be fishers of men. That means they will call people out of the sea of darkness and sin into the kingdom. They will do as he is doing right now. Jesus is fishing them. He is fishing men and he will turn his disciples into fishers of men. And his disciples will do the work of God that God has called them to do. To make other disciples. To bring others into the kingdom of God. And notice Jesus says, I will make you become this. He doesn't leave us on our own to do this. And so then we see the response of the disciples in verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. The response of the disciples is to physically leave everything and follow Jesus. They left their professions behind. They left their current lives behind. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they just left their father in the boat. They just left them sitting there and they went with Jesus. They were willing to follow him everywhere he led. Now, obviously, we're not to physically leave our families. We're not following a physical Jesus like they were. They're in a different situation. Jesus was physically there. But this is a representation of what it means to be a disciple. This is a representation of what it means to repent and believe. To trust that Jesus is who he says he is. To trust that Jesus is all that Mark has said that he is. And so, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, the presence of the Lord himself in the flesh. He's the servant of the Lord that's come to bring about the new exodus, to deliver us from sin and death, from the kingdom of darkness, from the hand of Satan. And he's to deliver us into everlasting life in the kingdom of God. And so you are to repent, to turn from your old way of living, leaving behind the path of selfishness, leaving behind sin and rejection of God, and to turn towards God. You're to turn towards God and accept His way of life that He's given us in His Word. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will submit to Him. You'll study His teachings. You'll apply them in your life. If you look at the teaching of Jesus, through the Gospel accounts, He spoke a lot of the kingdom of God, often the kingdom of heaven, as He puts it. Because the new exodus that he brings about isn't only about the future, new heavens and the new earth. It is about that. That's crucial to God establishing his reign when it will be fully realized in the future resurrection. But the kingdom of God is also new. Jesus came to call people out of darkness into light. He came to deliver his people out of bondage to sin and death into his kingdom. You and I were all once walking in darkness, living in sin, living for your own glory, following the course of the world, chasing money, fame, status, living according to the philosophy of the world, according to the philosophy of Satan. But God sent his spirit to bring you to new spiritual life, to bring you into his kingdom, to repent and believe in the gospel and to live a life of following his anointed king, his Christ. To live a life as a disciple of Jesus. To change your heart that you no longer reject Jesus, but you instead love him. And it's out of your love that you submit to him in obedience. 
It's a response to good news of something that has already happened. The repenting and the believing doesn't earn you anything because it's good news. It's already happened. And so you will now follow his teachings out of love in response. And he will change you. You will grow in your knowledge of him. You will grow in your relationship with him. You will grow into his image. And the further along you go on your journey as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the more he will make you like him. And so after Jesus calls these first four disciples and and both sets of brothers just immediately follow him, Jesus moves on in his ministry. We read starting in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And so it says they went to Capernaum. They, meaning Jesus and his new disciples, they were already following him everywhere he went. And in Capernaum, they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And Jesus was teaching there. And the people were astonished. Jesus is teaching with authority. He is coming in with the authority of the king. This is his kingdom. He's announcing it. The scribes did have authority in their day. It's not that the scribes had no authority, but they had to refer to others. They had to cite other scholars, the traditions of the rabbis. Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have to cite anyone because he is the almighty king. He is ushering in God's reign over all the earth. Jesus is the word of God incarnate. He speaks with an authority that no one ever has before because he was God himself. He was God come in human form teaching theology to the people. And the word astonished doesn't mean that these people were simply surprised what they heard. The word translated there actually has fear in it. They were afraid by what they heard, and especially by what they saw. And so starting at verse 23, we read, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commanded even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. In the middle of their worship, a man possessed by a demon comes into the synagogue. So you can imagine the silence that came upon the crowd as this man interrupts Jesus' teaching. And the unclean spirit cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so he speaks in the plural, What have you to do with us? Meaning all of the demons, all of those Satan and in his dark kingdom. And the phrase, what have you to do with us, is common in the Old Testament. It's actually the language of combat. It immediately produces a confrontation. And Jesus will see much confrontation from demons throughout his earthly ministry. 
And it's interesting because there are relatively few references to the demonic world in the Old Testament. Demonic possession is, is extremely rare, and the same throughout church history. But while Jesus was on the earth, there seems to be demons and demonic possession everywhere. And that's because they've come to oppose God's anointed king. They know that the time has come. They know that Jesus is the son of God, as they will say many times throughout this story. This unclean spirit says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so that's their plan, to expose him. The, the demons are trying to reveal who Jesus is as an attempt to subdue him. Jesus is not ready to fully and openly announce his identity in public. Because he's not ready for the religious leaders and the Romans to kill him. Once Jesus fully admits who he is, they have him killed. And the demons may be trying to get him killed prematurely, before his work is done, before he can teach us all that he has to teach us. They're trying to thwart God's plan. But as we remember in Psalm 2, the idea of opposing God and his king is laughable. You cannot defeat God. You can't even throw off his plan. And Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the king that has come to establish God's reign. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. There's nothing that demons can do to stop him. And so he doesn't only teach with the authority of God. He shows his authority as well. We see in his altercation with every demon. And in response to this unclean spirit here. Who's trying to expose that he is God's Messiah. That he is the Holy One of God. Jesus immediately rebukes this demon. And he commands him to be quiet and to come out of the man. And because Jesus is who Mark says he is, he is the Son of God, God's anointed king over his whole kingdom, he shows his authority and the demons must obey. In verse 26 it says, And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So if anyone wasn't astonished with fear before from his teaching, they certainly would have been at this point. Jesus is establishing his authority as king in his teachings and in his actions. He's revealing the power of God and the coming of God's reign. But this is not only his authority over the demons that he reveals. He also reveals his power over human sickness. So the next story we read, starting in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. Now with Peter's story, or the story of Peter's mother-in-law being ill, we see Jesus coming in and healing her immediately. His power over human sickness is as total as his power over the demons. And through his actions, God is revealing his reign over all creation. Jesus is revealing the reign of God over all things. But he also reveals us the nature of God's reign. And so that is the third element of the kingdom from our passage this morning. The nature of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is less about a territory as it is about God's reign, God's rule over all things. And in the coming of Jesus, his anointed king, God establishes his rule. 
And his authority is being established over the demons, over human illness and disease. He's revealing the nature of his kingdom. God's reign is to defeat his and our enemies. God's reign is to defeat the evil powers of this world. He's going to defeat not only sin and death, but he's going to defeat Satan and all of his demons. And so Jesus, as God in the flesh, is establishing that he has authority over Satan and his demons. When he commands them, they must listen. They try to reveal who he is. They're trying to oppose him. They want to expose who he is so the religious authorities might kill him. But he silences them because he's not ready to reveal his true identity. He has more work to do and he's the one with all the authority. And he also reveals God's heart and God's plan with human sickness and disease. Jesus healed sickness throughout his ministry on earth and quite frequently because he's revealing that God not only has power over sickness, But in his reign, when it is fully realized in the return of Christ, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. And in his reign, in his kingdom, it's already begun in the first coming of Jesus. But it hasn't yet been fully realized. We still deal with the suffering of sickness, pain, and death. But Jesus will continue to show what God's heart is, what his rule will be like when it is fully realized Throughout his ministry. We can see this starting in verse 32. That evening at sundown. They brought to him all who were sick. Or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. And cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Because they knew him. Now you know one thing to point out is that. Some people who doubt demonic possession and what Jesus was doing will pretend like the people in the first century that Jesus was removing the demons from them were just sick. They just had epilepsy or something like that. But notice, Mark is very clearly saying these are two different things. They brought to him all who were sick or opposed by demons. The demons were there oppressed by demons. The demons were there to oppose Jesus. That's why there were so many of them at this time. And Jesus will continue to establish his power over them. The power of God over Satan and the demons. And he will continue to heal people from various diseases. Showing his authority over human sickness. And showing his love for people wanting to heal them. He's revealing the nature of the kingdom of God. And he's revealing his authority to establish it. And so while human kings establish their authority with the sword. Killing people. Jesus does so by healing people, by showing compassion. And notice again, it says, Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He's not ready to fully reveal himself and because he's not yet ready to die. But when it is time, he will fully reveal who he is. He will willingly submit himself to the corrupt men who will kill him. Not because he doesn't have the power to stop them, but because his plan to establish his reign and his authority in the kingdom of God is to allow himself to die in the place of the sinners who he loves. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life on this earth. He lived sinlessly, perfectly obeying the law of God, 
Perfectly following the will of God. Perfectly loving the people of God as only God himself could do. And he did this all so he could die in your place through faith. A sinless, perfectly righteous man sacrificed in the place of everyone who puts their trust in him and in him alone. And in return, you are called to respond to this gospel, to this good news. You are called to repent and believe that it is true. It calls for you to submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord, as his servant. It calls for you to love Jesus and obey him out of love. This good news calls for the lifelong commitment to leave behind your old life of selfishness and sin, of living for your own glory, and to follow Jesus as his disciple, learning from him, learning to be like him. And so anytime you're confronted with Jesus, anytime you're confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God, the question arises that I want to ask you. Do you believe? Do you need to repent? Do you need to submit yourself to Jesus as your king? If so, let today be the day. He gave his life so that sinners like you could be forgiven, so that you living in the kingdom of darkness could be brought into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the only way into the kingdom. He is the king. So when you embrace him, then you can wait for his return. Because upon the return of Jesus Christ, he will finalize his reign. And once and for all, he will defeat his and our enemies. He will defeat Satan and the demons. And he will make all things new. There will be no more sickness, no more death, no more mourning or pain. And we will be his bride, the church. And he will be our groom. And we will be with him in a blessed reality for the rest of eternity. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we glorify and praise your holy name. As wretched sinners, not worthy of you, you sent your Son to call us to you. You sent your Son, who has authority over all things, to bring us into your kingdom. And he did so, living a sinless life, but still died the death of a criminal, of a sinner. And he did so to purchase us so we could be yours. And so we praise you, Lord. Out of gratitude and love and in response to the news you've given us, we give our lives to you. We repent and we believe and we trust in your promises. We trust in your son and your will for our lives. And so we continue to ask that you transform us into the image of Christ. That we can live a life of love and live a life pleasing to you until the day that Jesus returns. And it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen.